In the last couple of weeks or a few weeks, we've talked about two different ways of living. One is the way of a child and the other is the way of a slave. Both of these ways are prominent in saints of all generations. Both of them are capable of producing great things in this world. So one of them is not bad and the other one good. But one of them is hard and the other one is easier. One of them is a brickyard and the other one is a festival. But both of them can make a pyramid. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, the Bible says that we have been redeemed. That means bought back. It says more than that, that we have been adopted into the family of God. It says in 1 Peter 1 that we have a new birth into a living hope. That's not a metaphor. Later in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says we were born again, not with perishable seed, but imperishable seed. Again, I don't believe that's a metaphor. We were born by the word of God taking root inside of us. 1 John chapter 3 says how great the Father's love that we should be called the children of God. And that's exactly what we are. John chapter 1 says, To all who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of a human decision, but born of God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, that God has sent the spirit of his son into our spirit, and so we are no longer slaves, but children. And if children, then we are heirs of God. These are stunning statements. If you listen to them, the trouble is, I said a few weeks ago, most of us have learned the language, but we have not yet comprehended everything that we've learned. So we're capable of saying and singing things that we can't yet fully believe, not because we're unwilling, but it just hasn't soaked in far enough yet. So it's a little like uh, slaves in the South in the 1800s who would work in the fields by day, but then by night they would gather around a campfire and they would play and sing and worship. It was as if they were living in two different worlds. One of them was the world of a slave, and the other one at night was the world of a child. So they could worship and lose themselves in this 
calling of God, and yet every one of them knew that, <laughs> that as the fires dimmed down and everyone went back to their rooms, tomorrow was coming, and they would go back into the fields. This, I think, is the image that I've had of some of us. Uh, I think many of us in this series, I think worship uh, for some of us is a one-hour reprieve from the fields. It's like a campfire at night. We say things and we sing things that we believe are true and we want them to be really true, but they haven't yet soaked in to our identity. But pretty soon, we'll be giving the benediction. And tomorrow is coming. And we'll go back to the fields. And so um, I've created a chart that I've kept on my wall, haven't shown it to anybody through the series except Eric because he has to work with me on spiritual formation. And um, this chart was sort of how I mapped the series. I put some of the core questions down the center of the page, and then on the left I put slave, <laughs> and on the right I put child. And so for every one of these core questions, for instance, who will take care of me? How do I know everything's going to be okay? I will find that my instincts are either more like a slave or they're more like a child. If they're like a slave, then I will seek certainty and control. And one more time, that works. But if it's more like a child, I will learn to trust. I'll step out into things that are unknown with no more certainty than this. God is with me in the present step. I have no idea what's going to happen after that. Do you understand? Those are two different mindsets. And so without showing anyone, I've sort of used these as rails to guide this series. And then this week, late in the week, uh, it occurred to me, maybe other people could benefit from that. And so I called or got Andrea in the office and asked her to draw this up real pretty so we could hand it out. On this card that you'll get as you leave, uh, you'll have seven or eight different characteristics. A core question down the center, how does a slave respond to that? How does a child respond to that? thing to keep in mind is it's never either or. It's plus minus, so that even though we live as children, we may have tendencies of slavery in us. So it's a spectrum, it's a continuum. You shouldn't look at it and start circling. It's better to just look at it and say, where is my life most of the time? Now understand, the question is not which one are you. The question is where do you spend most of your time? And the other thing is you probably don't know. The closer you get to you, the better the news. Everybody knows you except you. So you probably should ask someone who has to live with you. But, 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 wait, wait, and is not beholden to you. 
so that when they tell you the truth, their life doesn't get harder. <laughs> so what you might do is take this thing with you as you leave back to your small groups, and you might look that over with people that you talk with every week. You might say, I'm just looking at a couple of these things, freedom or disposition or security. Which one do you think I'm more like? And then just listen. And once they have helped locate you on the spectrum from slave to child, then you might want to pull out this other little card we handed out six weeks ago and go through the four questions. All right, Steve, now that you know where you are, what do you think God is trying to say to you? What is it keeps you from doing it? If you were to do it, what might be a good first step? If you're like me, you'll go, well, I don't know. Oh, we'll tell you. <laughs> and last, who are you going to tell? Or who are you going to ask to help you? All right? Are you there? We're warming up. No, we're not. The cards will be available for you, won't they, um, uh, guys, in the back? Yep, he's already got them now. All right. Let me go into the last episode, then, of Abraham's life. It's an episode that I call Legacy. The last few stories of Abraham's life occur in Genesis chapter 23, 24, and 25. What strikes me as this guy grows old is that his aging is too much like ours. Now, remember, this is a man who took on five kings and whipped them. It's a man who started three of the world's religions. He once negotiated with God and got him down 80% on Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are some remarkable accomplishments. I'm expecting this guy to go out with a bang, like Enoch, you know. He's just walking one day, and he is not, for God takes him. He's gone. That's how it should have been. Or at least some parting words to Isaac. Call in Isaac and say, here, sit down. I'm going to preach for an hour. That's what I'm going to do when i gone. <laughs> but instead, all we get to summarize Abraham's life is just a couple of verses in chapter 25. It says, And Abraham died at a good old age, full of years, and he was gathered to his people. The end. I'm looking for more. So the first thing that strikes me is how uh, um, unheroic, unspectacular this life is, just like mine. As he gets older, there are no more heroic deeds. Um, he buries his wife, remarries. At 135 or 140 years old, are you listening? He remarries. Wait for it, has six more kids. Okay, that's pretty heroic. The dude's north of 140 years old, and he's firing children. That's pretty good. <laughs> See? 
<laughs> a delight. Man, you say amen at all the right times <laughs> on most weeks. <laughs> but otherwise, he starts to feel his powers diminish. Uh, when it comes time to find a wife for Isaac, who can't find one yet, he sends a servant off to a far country back home to get that. Abraham's too old to travel. His powers and faculties are failing him. And so by the time he's ready to die, he calls Isaac in, says nothing. Abraham never blesses Isaac, not at all. But as soon as Abraham's through breathing, the very next verse says, but God blessed Abraham. The other thing that struck me about his uh, last few years, you guys, is that very much like ours, I'm speaking now to people over, well, let's just guess, over 60, 50, okay, 40. <laughs> As he gets older, God stops talking to him. This rattles me. Remember, this is a man who has either seen God or heard directly from God not less than six times. Some say eight. But the last time he hears God say anything to him is on Mount Moriah when he's sacrificing his son Isaac. After that, God's voice is never heard again. Not only that, but when he goes to bury his wife, Sarah, which is arguably one of the more tender moments in an old man's life, the word God is never mentioned at all. Now, this is strange, isn't it? This God has appeared to him all through his life, but as he comes down to the end of his life, it's as if Abraham has to shift, wait for the language, he has to shift from depending on visions to depending on providence. When it's a vision, God appears and makes a statement directly to you. But when it's providence, you have to read the signs. You have to look at the way things are going, and you have to assume that God is hiding behind the details. It's a far more indirect way of apprehending God. My guess is most people in the room right now would say that your great feats with God happened in your 20s and 30s. But when you turned 40 or 50, he went quiet. By the time you're 60s, radio silent. And you're still waiting for that voice to come through. And all you're left with is providence. Still. Still, Abraham manages to leave a powerful legacy. Let's take a question a moment. We're going to turn to somebody next to you again and answer a few questions. You got them picked out? Here's the first one. What is the first name of your father's grandfather? or your great-grandfather, or if you will, your mother's grandmother. Turn to the person next to you and give them the first name of your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother. Go. It won't take long. Question number two. Really, that's not a hard question. Question number two. Are you ready? 
Where are they buried? Tell them that. Question, this isn't long. Question three. Are you ready? What did they stand for? Your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother, what did they stand for? Go for it. And question four. Really, I wasn't looking for a biography. I was just looking for a sentence or two. Um, What do you have in your possession that they left you? Turn and tell the person. Now, you're either going to give a list or you're going to shrug and say nothing. All right, test is over. How many of you could answer successfully all four questions? Let me see your hand. I'm, wait, I'm assuming the answer was never I don't know or nothing. <laughs> I had not an answer. That's a default, a punt, okay? How many had good answers for all four questions? May I see your hands? Even you know you have something in your possession that they left you, that's marvelous. So I think that's about maybe 10% of the population. So what that might mean, if I'm not mistaken, is that 90% of us might be forgotten by the third generation. That's a staggering thought. Because we're pretty sure our lives are memorable. But what happens is as we diminish in powers, they become less memorable and our stamp or footprints becomes less pronounced, not more. The question then is how does Abraham become the kind of person whose name is remembered for years? This is not a formula, but I've noticed a few patterns. Can I give them to you? One of them is that his life is others-centered, not self-centered. It is centrifugal, not centripetal. Now, if you're in your 30s, this is easy for you. It's easy for you to give your lives away. But the older you get, the stronger the tendency to try to pull other people into your world. And the harder it is to give your things away because you feel like they're diminishing. They're getting fewer, not greater. But we have to resist the urge to try and bring other people into our world and force ourselves to get into theirs. So if something is centripetal, it takes what is on the perimeter of life, whether people, topics of conversation, or whatnot, and pulls it into the center, which is me. But if it's centrifugal, it throws itself out to the parameters. So if something is centripetal, that is, it pulls to the center, then it is always saying to the next generation, come back here. Stay put. Live here. This is how God meets us. It looks like this. Come back. Come back. But if something is centrifugal, if it throws itself out onto the next generation, then it says, take me with you. (laughs) Here's who I am. Now take me with you. There's a powerful scene at the end of Genesis when Joseph is dying and he knows he will not see the promised land. 
Does he say to his brothers, after I die, you stay put, for this is the land I gave you? No, no. He says, when you enter the promised land, take my bones with you and bury them with you in the promised land. You see the picture? This is a centrifugal life. He's not saying, how do I bring the future back to me? He's saying, how do I get the future to carry me with him? That's legacy. So I'm concerned about two verses in chapter 25, verse 5 and verse 6. Your Bibles are open, you'll notice them. These two verses stand out to me. Verse 25 says, all that he had, Abraham gave to Isaac. But then I'm asking, what was all that he had? What was everything he had? The question's important because the very next verse says, before he died, he gave gifts to the rest of his sons, and he sent them away to the east. So clearly, Abraham did not give all that he had to Isaac, because somebody answered that, because some of what he had, he gave to his sons, and then he sent them away. It's just as important that he takes care of the other six as it is that he separates the rest of his kids from Isaac. Because in Abraham's mind, Isaac is the center of attention. He is the promise come alive. So the kids will get the gifts. But Isaac will get the legacy. Now, the dictionary, which is where all great scholars go to get their insight, defines legacy, wait for it, as a presence in the next generation. When a person leaves a legacy, they leave something of themselves in the next generation. A legacy, therefore, is not just a memory. Because a memory is not a presence. It's not a signature achievement. It's not a large sum of money. It's not a piece of property. Though it may include all of these things, a legacy is always something more because it is to be something of a presence in the next generation. As I look at Abraham's life, it seems like his legacy comes in three layers. The first layer, the closest one to him, is his assets. If you want his portfolio, look at chapter 24, verse 35, and it says, by this time, Abraham is a rich person, and his portfolio consists of land, and livestock, silver, gold, and servants. In other words, he's extremely wealthy. So the first thing that he gives to the next generation, Isaac, is his assets. In America, by the way, the average inheritance is $150,000. And it lasts the beneficiaries, on average, 17 months. 
Think hard about that. You work a lifetime for that. Kids burn through it in less than a year and a half. But it's a heck of a boat. The second thing that Abraham gives beyond the assets is the promise. The promise is a story. The promise is how God honored you in your life. The promise are tales of how you have walked with God. So the promise is the reason we have the assets. Remember, Isaac was there walking up to Mount Moriah, and he said to his daddy, where's the lamb? Daddy said, oh, the Lord himself will provide the lamb. And Isaac was there when he was laid on the altar and the angel stopped Abraham's hand and he heard the voice again saying, you have given me your son, your only son. In other words, Abraham, I've kept my promises to you. Now you're keeping your promises to me. And Isaac was there when Abraham called that altar, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. You don't think those tales are embedded in this young man's mind. So the promise is a conversation like, Isaac, let me tell you about your God. Some time ago, he made a promise to us as a family, and we didn't have anything, but we stepped out in faith and obedience, and God has honored every last thing that he said. Son, we are not like the other nations. We are not like them, not because we are better, but because we are chosen. And God is going to do something with our family that he is not going to do with other nations. In fact, he's going to bless other families through our family. Son, we live different than they live. Because we have the promise of God, we're peculiar people. What I've noticed is that when we think about assets today, this is as far as legacies go, but legacies are much bigger than this. They're about promises that God has made to us. This is the importance, by the way, of family intentional altar time. It brings children together at a place so the parents can interpret their lives to the kids. It's perfectly okay to talk about God at an altar. And yet what I hear from the surveys, 75% of our teenage children, evangelical teenage children, I'm not talking out there, 75% of our teenage children report that they seldom to never hear the word God at home during the week. Think hard about that. Because whether we actually say it or not, by leaving him out of it, we imply to our kids that we got these things the good old-fashioned American way through education, hard work, and resilience. Resilience. 
There's another narrative, man. You are people of a promise. You have what you have because God made a promise to you. Other people in this world have worked just as hard as you and they have infinitely less. God has been good to you. Tell them that. That's your story. The third layer outside of Abraham's assets and Abraham's promise is Abraham's God. Oswald Chambers said at the end of his life, Abraham, the most telling thing about his life is nothing of Abraham at all. It's his God that is so impressive. So watch this. 22 times throughout the rest of the Bible, you will hear the phrase, the God of Abraham. You see, the question in a legacy is never so much, what are you leaving? It's who is your God? What kind of God did my mama and daddy believe in? Not because we have formally taught them, or maybe we did, but because they watched us talk to him. They listened to language. They heard stories. We described him in our times alone. So what makes Isaac so secure in the future is Abraham's God, not Abraham's assets. Long after Abraham's assets have been spent or redistributed, Abraham's promise and Abraham's God will remain in the soul of his descendants. And that is his greatest legacy. Now, what I've observed in our culture is that we are more bent on leaving assets or more intentional, I should say, than we are at leaving promises and leaving our God. When, in fact, the assets are the least important part of our legacy. It's the part everybody fights over, but it's the first thing to leave in the next 50 years. The second thing I've noticed is that we tend as people to divide our legacy. We will give assets mostly to one person or people and try to leave our promise in God mostly with another. <laughs> so in most families, children get all of the assets, but what they need is all of the promise and all of the God. As a rule of thumb, it is better to invest your assets in the place where you lived the story and you served the God. When assets follow promise and God, there is alignment in a person's life, wherever that is. 
But when we diffract them, we lose energy. What then is the legacy that Abraham transmits? I turned to Hebrews to find this, and I'll just put the, them on the screen. I think I will. Yeah, I will. So you can see them. From the book of Hebrews, we get a brief summary of Abraham's life. And these are the principles that I wrote on a card to myself saying, Steve, when you're dealing with your kids, transmit this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. The legacy, I thought, is to obey before you know the outcome. I want to teach them to move towards something you'll receive later, not now, simply because you were called. I want to teach my kids that we have nothing to do with the afterword of obedience. Chambers said the call of God becomes clear only as we obey not as we weigh the pros and cons, because the call is God's idea, not my idea. And it is only on looking back over the path of obedience will I see what was the idea of God. Second, by faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land. He's like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs of the same promise. I want to teach my descendants to call home a place that is not their home because God has given them a future in that place. Someone said a person is great not by the things he achieves, but by the things he reaches for. Some people reach for things in this life that they can grasp. Other people reach for things as they are grasped by someone else. And they strive for things they could never achieve in this life. Third, by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become the father because he considered God faithful who made the promise. The legacy is to teach my descendants to speak confidently of things just because God said so. Someone said a person of faith is a person whose ideas are God's ideas. Last. By faith, these people admitted that they were strangers and aliens on earth. So they're looking for a country of their own. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's a staggering phrase. God is not ashamed to be called the God of these people. 
for he has prepared a city for them. The legacy then, church, is to live in a way that is peculiar to the culture that you live in. It is to live as though certain things are true before they are actually true. Just because God told you they are true. Are you hearing? Your tendency when you believe a promise is going to be to try and prove it. You can't prove it. A promise is located in the future. It cannot be proven. It can only be lived. And when it is lived, that life is the proof. This morning, I thought the best way to... Um, close the service would be to pray a prayer of blessing over the generations. I think I've told you before that sometime before he died, I made special appointments to go down and see an old man who was something of a theological mentor to me. I'd been three or four times, and one time I said to my son, this time I want you to come along. We'll sit in the old boy's living room and let him unload. So we did. I took Nick along. We sat in the old boy's living room, and for about two hours, he unloaded, moving seamlessly from one thought to the next. The guy's north of 90 years old when he's doing this, tapping my knee the whole time, smiling like he just discovered something. When the conversation was over, I said, I got to get up. I got to get back to the chapel. I got to preach tonight. Got to think of something to say. So before I leave, um, I just want to thank you for everything you've done the last few years. And when I went to open the door, he put his hand on the door and slammed it shut. And he said, don't you leave until I pray for your son. That was worth the trip. The old boy put his hands on Nick's head and as eloquent as I'd ever heard him, prayed a prayer of blessing over my son. He said things I never could have said. <laughs> I can't think like that. We got in the car, drove away. Neither one of us said a word for maybe a mile. And all of a sudden, Nick looked at me and said, Gosh, I could listen to that old boy all day long.